make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Hi and welcome. I am Kaya Alexander, the host of Entertainment Business Wisdom. Stoked to be here today with my special guest, Seth Sherwood. Let me tell you about Seth. He is a Los Angeles-based screenwriter, director, designer, and producer. His feature screenwriting credits include Leatherface for Millennium Lionsgate and Hellfest for Valhalla CBS Films. He also provided uncredited on-set script work for London Has Fallen. On the TV side, Seth is staffed on two teen horror shows with Awesomeness TV, The Unsettling, and Light as a Feather for Hulu. He was recently staffed on an anthology horror series for Blumhouse Peacock and is currently on a new animated series for Amazon. He has also developed original pilots with Amblin TV, Valhalla Entertainment, and Universal, and the script for the video game The Devil and Me, by Supermassive Games. Seth, we're recording live in front of my students in the Entertainment Business School. I'm so stoked to have you in the house. Thank you. It's super fun to be here. And hearing all those things in a row makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing okay. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's good to feel like we're doing okay in this business, right? I feel like that's yeah. that rare, rare feeling. We try to draw it out and remind ourselves we have all these wonderful accomplishments. Yeah, well, it's I'm great so- as a list. There's, there's so much, there's so many gaps between those things. <laughs> I am so curious, where where did you begin your journey in the entertainment business? Like, where did you decide this is the career path for me? Um, I actually moved to L.A. 23, 24 years ago uh, to go to grad school for prose writing. Um, and I, I'm from Portland originally, and I went to art school before that. So I was going to grad, working as a designer, going to grad school to learned to be a better writer for for books and it took me about two years to write my thesis novel and about you know two weeks to be rejected everywhere and 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 you know the way it is in LA is you you move here you realize how expensive it is you adjust to it but then you're too poor to move home so I was still here for a while and ended up you know along the way sort of starting a family and I'm like well I'm still writing I bet I could write a screenplay in like a fraction of the time as a book and I love movies so I started doing that and had a lot of fun doing it and I basically you know you're supposed to everyone says you got to write like four or five six of them and to get to get used to the how to do it and just the the flow and you know become a little more intuitive with it so I kind of did all that without being seen or read at all so by the time I you know you live in LA long enough you start meeting people by the time I was able to uh, start 
getting read, um, my scripts were, you know, better than the average newcomer who was fresh out of school because I'd been doing it for, you know, three, four, maybe even five years. And getting read eventually led me to my first manager who was a friend and she was more of a talent manager, not a lit person. So her, she made it her goal to get me to a lit person while still getting me in front of who she could. And with who she could get me in front of, um, one of my horror specs uh, made it onto the blood list. And then that was, that was probably the first real game changer for me um, because Kaylee Marsh, who runs the blood list, she took me on as a client as well. And then I basically started with, with her and doing the usual, like, doing generals everywhere you can. And then that eventually leads to getting pitch meetings. And then, you know, since finished writing that thesis novel, it was just a very short 10 years. And then I finally, <laughs> finally landed uh, Leatherface. And then from there, there, there was actually momentum. Within a couple of years, I finally quit my day job and it became my regular thing. Uh, and it has been, I think this is my eighth, eighth or ninth year of just writing to Sully. Um, so yeah. That was, it sounds quick, but it was a long time. Um, I know how that is. I'm a novelist as well in screenwriting and, and they're, they're similar. There's like a Venn diagram of overlap. Oh, sure. but then that length of time it takes to write a novel is, yeah, considerable by comparison. Have you gone back to novel writing at all? Funny enough, like it wasn't until COVID when I had a lot of downtime that I started digging up old stuff and I, and I, and I wrote one and I really liked it. And it sort of unlocked some part of my brain. Um, and I was sort of messing around doing short stories here and there. And it's just been in, uh, within the last, I'd say, four or five months that I've started looking down that like that path seriously again and have a manuscript coming together and I'm starting to talk to people. Okay. Um, I, I foolishly thought, hey, if I'm already working as a writer over here, that means I won't have to like query and wait three months for replies on, you know, the literary world side, but that's not true. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness. Well, you've done some really cool stuff. What are you the most proud of? Um, so hard. Light as a feather is probably the thing that I could take the most ownership of, especially the second season, because I was uh, co-show running or co-executive producing to some extent where I'm you know, you're on set, you're, you're producing ADR sessions, you're, you're running them, running the room when the showrunner is out. And it's, you know, the, the, I wrote a lot of the episodes. So just the ability to like feel like my voice was definitely heard and the DNA of that show is, is a huge part of my contribution. Um, you know, and the, the final product didn't quite have the budget to do everything we wanted to do, which is usually the case. But in terms of like what was in my head versus what the world got, that was uh, the closest. So it's probably the one that excites me the most to think about. Oh, that's so great. Walk us back a little bit also to Leatherface, because I'm curious about your early experience. This is something that you get set up. What happens? Um, so the way that worked was I had, had I was doing my generals. Like once I got a rep, I had my spec scripts and they were read. And I just started taking meetings at generals. And I had one with Millennium Studios who made the movie. And, you know, when you take a general, you don't always feel like anything comes of it because, you know, you want to walk in, be yourself and walk out with a job. And that's usually not how it goes. But if you do it well, they they remember you. They, you know, they put you in their, their Rolodex, their system, whatever they want to call it. And um, having 
Haley, the bloodless person, as my manager helps because when people are looking for horror writers, she's anyone in town is going to hit her up probably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she represents a lot of horror writers at this point. At the time, she only did a few. And so those two things combined, when they hit her up, they had met with me already. So they're like, hey, would Seth like to pitch on this? And, um, you know, pitch meetings come in all shapes and sizes. And I can't say there's a correlation between, um, you know, a big a big pitch where I did a whole presentation and had a, you know, that went an hour long and I was in person with visual help, like gets me jobs all the time versus not doing that. But that's that's not true. I've had pitches of all shapes and sizes get me jobs of all shapes and sizes. There's no, I haven't been able to figure out the correlation. That one, I was actually at Comic-Con. At the time I was um, working for a website we were shooting uh, video interviews with comic creators. And I was, we were on a boat outside the convention center in San Diego shooting videos. I was down in the hold, like editing them and posting them up to the website. And in the middle of that, uh, my Haley called me and said, they want to hear your pitch for Leatherface. Are you interested? And I said, yeah. So I, Stayed in that night and I came up with something and literally the next day on my lunch or two days later on my lunch break in the, you know, in the boat, I had like a 15 minute phone call and that was it. And they, they went with my pitch. Um, and I've done, you know, the whole big rigmarole and not gotten jobs. So I can't say, <laughs> I don't know. the <laughs> uh, They just liked my take. They of course wanted more, which is then, you know, once I got home, I wrote up a more complete take and I made the deck um, that everyone saw that, that, that was just, that was a bonus for me having been a designer. I, I wanted to do that. Um, So I'd already had the job, but I still, you know, had to like give them something more substantial. Like, you know, and I did a, did a treatment and that deck. And from, you know, from there, we just, that got refined into an outline, which then became the first draft of a really fast process that time. Right. I think at this point, still the fastest feature job I've ever had. That's incredible. I know our listeners on the podcast won't get a chance to see the deck. Could you describe the movie um, in case they haven't seen it? A little walk us through a little bit. Sure. It, basically, the it was um, a prequel to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is the you know one of the best horror movies ever made. And my take on it was. Um, I, there's a very obvious way to think of a prequel to to a movie like Chainsaw. Like you just think, okay, it's just you know the, the weird mutant family, but he's a kid instead. And then I, I realized sort of like this is what everyone's going to pitch. So I needed to come up with something totally different. And I thought about the franchise, and I realized that all the mo- all most of them up up until the more recent ones had this had a road trip element to them. And I don't know if that that was intentional or coincidental. So I just decided to like, okay, what's a road trip young Leatherface story? And I also just needed like, I needed a crazy sort of hook that I thought would make me stand out. And like, what I came up with was, what if you don't know which one of these kids is Leatherface? And so uh, that's how I kind of got to the story. The deck was me just thinking about, just timeline-wise, since the original movie is 74, um, you know, if you want to take subtract time, you're talking, you know, Texas in the early 60s. So I just started thinking about that. And that led me to, you know, thinking of um, Badlands, which is a movie shot that, you know, has that, that vibe to it. So I rewatched Badlands. I just started watching other movies like that. And that's sort of like, there's a little bit of a, a cheat in that Badlands had so much of the, you know, footage I want, like old police cars, 
just wide open expanses of like, you know, the Texan landscape. And so, you know, I've, again, I've worked as a designer for many years, so I know visual storytelling pretty well. So I just started gathering what images I could and sort of, uh, you know, I didn't put the whole story there. Basically, I put the, a very light version of my treatment into it and just built the visuals around that. And so it's a lot of just, you know, like old vintage Western-y type stuff. Not like cowboy Western, but like, you know, Texas in the 50s and the 60s. But one of the things I love about looking at that deck is that you do use setting as a character. It's so strong and the vibe as it comes through and everything is just fantastic. Yeah. Well, when the, you know, Texas is in the title of the thing. You got to, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that was the first thing that occurred to me. Isn't that right? It's got to, it's got to feel like Texas. Oh, I love that. You're a true multi-hyphenate and you love designing and producing and directing and writing. So talk to me about your relationship within wearing all those hats. Um, they, well, I think some of it comes from my background. Some of it just comes from what you have to do along the way. Um, I started as a graphic designer in undergrad. And then once I was in LA, I was working as a graphic designer for years. And that led to me doing motion graphics for side work. Um, and then motion graphics is basically, you know, design on a timeline. Once I got the idea of what a timeline was in my head, it was really easy for me to pick up uh, basic editing. Um, and I would never, I would never sell myself as like a full-time editor, but projects I worked on, I could do the editing. And in my day job, I brought a, it was originally just a designer job and I added a whole video component to it. So I was able, basically I got my day job to pay for me to get, you know, the, the software and, and the, the time that I could have so I could play with those on my off hours as well. And uh, I think that I, I'd always intended to sort of direct my own things. Um, I did this uh, brilliant maneuver, which I highly recommend to anybody, is to, if you go to school multiple times like I did and you have ridiculous amounts of student loans, go back again part-time to a community college. It's only going to cost you like a few hundred dollars because it puts everything in deferment. So I had my undergrad degree in design and I moved, came here and I got my graduate degree and in, 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 uh, my MFA in writing. And then I went back and then I went to Los Angeles City College and just started taking their film classes. Um, and that kept my student loans in deferment. And eventually I ended up with a, you know, a film certification uh, just because I ran out of classes to take. But I'd always wanted to sort of direct. Um, I'm older than I look. And basically when I graduated from high school, I could have gone to film school instead of art school. I would have. But at that point in time, uh, there were only three film schools. There was NYU, UCLA, right. and USC. I remember that era. It's not now when they're like everybody has a film program. It's like <laughs> pre-digital filmmaking. So, you know, it, it was just a costly thing that required lots of, um, you know, money and equipment and facilities. So being able to do it later was a lot of fun, but it was always something I wanted to do that I felt like I could do. I always liked, um, I also did a lot of uh, just still photography in undergrad. My mother is a photographer. So even though I, I majored in design in undergrad, I, I did a lot of photography classes as well. So just, you know, being a visual storyteller already made sense to me. So adding that to the writing made sense. I've made tons of short films that no one will see now because they're all my zero budget film school shorts with, <laughs> you know, ninjas and zombies and all the fun, stupid things you do in film school. Um, so it just, you know, that, that was always a thing that I meant to do, 
but the writing took off first to the point to where my writing resume quickly like way over escalated and made my directing reel look really unprofessional. Um, so I did, I did a short, I haven't had like six years ago and I just hadn't have, haven't had time to do another one. I'm trying to do another one this year and um, I'm working right now on getting my first feature as a director set up and funded, which is a whole thing. Um, so the, the, that's, it just sort of, that's those things I always wanted to do. The producing side, when you're a writer in television, you start, you become sort of a de facto producer. Um, it just start like the, the more you elevate in a, in a writer's room, you have to start doing things, like I said before, like you're going to set, because um, directors in TV are hired guns. They're aware of what's going on. They should be familiar with the show, but their job is really to like expertly block and shoot a, a compact, like on a budget um, script for, for television and, you know, get the, get the actors to do what they need to do on a television show. The writers are technically the boss, the showrunner's the boss and the showrunner is basically also the executive producer who's going to hire the, hire the directors. Um, and they're going to like keep things on track and post. So if you um, elevate up in rank in, um, in a writer's room, you start taking on producer roles um, like, you know, covering your episodes on set. So when the actors and the director don't know how something goes, you know how to tell them. Uh, and then you, you go into ADR and you go into edits to give your notes. So you just start, you just start picking up like production skills as part of the writing job in TV. And then there's also a few movies out there that I'm an executive producer of because I maybe wrote them, but not really like, you know, they're, a lot, there's a movie I wrote that I had my name taken off of. There's a movie that I just, I gave like really, really strong like script notes to. Like I basically like rewrote the movie for them and not wrote it, but like broke it down like the detailed like script doctoring notes so they could rewrite it. There's a few few things out there that I'm like listed as a producer of and that's because I went in and fixed the story for them um, to make it make it producible. That's really interesting. The uh, does in terms of the negotiation for that, you come in as a script doctor, and then you end up with a producing credit plus your fee. Is that how that works? Um, sometimes, yeah. They're all they're all sort of different because all of them they're like a lot of times they're trying to figure out because um, the union covers a lot of these things, but there's also there's also gaps in what the union will cover. Um, so a lot of time, yeah, a lot of time, you know, they, there was. One where they're like, we'll bring you on as the writer, but then turns out they couldn't do union deals. So I backed off to being producer and giving notes. Um, and generally, yeah, your, your reps will negotiate whatever the pay is. If there's not, if it's something that the WGA doesn't have a payment, you know, schedule or plan for. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right, right. So I want to walk back to television for a moment. We have a lot of writers in my school, a lot of writers who are listeners. I'm curious about your journey in ascending the ranks 
from lower level writers, staff writers, story editor, et cetera. Did you go through mid-level co-producer, producer before you got to EP? What was your journey like? My journey was a total cheat. I, I came in on the side because I had feature credits. Like, mm. the, yes, the, the normal path, um, well, the old, I, was, I would say like the, the classic path, right? Anyone I know who's like an old school TV veteran, they started as an assistant or a staff writer or both. And, you know, in like, this is one of the reasons why they're, you know, that the Writers uh, Guild is sort of threatening a strike this year. And this is sort of one of the things that's happening with streamers canceling shows after two seasons or studios um, not even releasing shows that are shot and done. That's sort of killing uh, the way writers get promoted. Right. Classically, you're on a show, you're one position, and then if you are rehired the next season, you get bumped up. Um, you know, you go from you go from story you go from staff writer to story editor to executive story editor to co-producer to produce. Like, you go up the ranks the more you stay at the show. Or, or if you go from one show to the next, they look at what you were on your last show, hiring you, and either hiring you at that same level or, or bumping you up one. Right. Um, the first show I worked on, the showrunners were specific. It was it was a streaming show. Um, I'm, I don't know if any of us were super thrilled with what came out just because it was a, there was a budgetary thing, but I only wrote one episode and the writer's room was only for, it was like a mini room. It was only like a, like a six week room, but the showrunner specifically wanted a horror screenwriter. So it was only eight episodes, eight half hour episodes. So, you know, you're, you're looking at a pretty compact story and it was, it was a straight, straight through story. So they thought a horror feature writer could, would be good at like, you know, seeing the arcs within that space. So I was sort of hired in already at the, at the um, executive story editor level. And then the same production company uh, studio did um, Light as a Feather. So they automatically promoted me when they hired me for that show. And then the second season, because that room was so small, um, I was able to stand out. And that's like the, the way to really elevate yourself is to, make yourself indispensable to the showrunner. Um, our writer's room was small and I was one of the more experienced writers in it. So I'm not saying I, you know, steamrolled the room by any means, but like, you know, I definitely made sure that like I did every bit of extra work, you know, I stayed as late as the showrunner. I, I, you know, the, the, the younger writers, the, the, the newer writers, like I made sure to do whatever I could to help them do their thing. I, I, you know, I, I helped, uh, we gave our um, volunteered to help our group, the assistant, our writer's assistant, actually do an episode. Um, I co-wrote it with her because that's a way that a lot of people break out of being assistant is that they get in the old days when you had like you know like a twenty-six episode season order. A lot of times the the room assistant would get an episode with you know to to help them elevate. So I did all I could to help everybody and be indispensable. So they made me a co-EP on the second season. Wow, that's really cool. You know, so, I mean, you can, it's 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 tricky because you don't want to steamroll people. You don't want to, like, you know, take over and be an asshole about it. But at the same time, you know, I know, I know I have friends, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I know people who just want to staff. They want to bounce from this show to this show to that show, you know, and don't always necessarily care what the genre is. They're, like, they're just a TV person. They're a staff person. They want to be involved in TV production. That wasn't quite... The same goal I had. My goal was to, you know, I, I have. I mean, I, I got. You know, I have a brand to some extent. Like I, I very much like 
I like being, a, I, I love other genres, but like being a horror person has worked out for me. And those are the job offers I get. So at some point I decided I'm leaning into that. I'm going to be the horror guy. And, you know, there's plenty of mainstream big things and horror is a genre that never goes away. Um, so my plan for TV was, I would love to have my own show. Um, I'm not going to get to that. I have to get to that by being a creator, by being a, uh, uh, a creative thinker. I have to get that way by being a producer. I'm not going to get to that if I just bounce between shows staffing. My reps put me up for shows all the time. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged straight white guy. I'm a little bit staffing kryptonite right now, which is just, I have to accept as part of the industry that's, there's a correction that needs to happen going on. So I just have to accept, you know, the bad behavior of people that looked like me that came before me and recognize that. But that's also okay because I'm not just looking to staff, I'll jump in a room if somebody, you know, really wants me. That's great. But for me, wanting to have my own show, I'm writing pilots. And if I am in a room, I'm making sure that I'm, you know, helping direct the, the vision and the direction of the show and not just there to do my job. Not that there's anything wrong at all with just being a person who wants to staff and be a part of the TV machine, because that's rewarding, um, especially financially, because those are the only people in Hollywood who have like a regular paycheck are those people who just get into that machine, especially if you're on like a pop or doctor or lawyer show that goes for a thousand seasons. Like, you Dick know, Wolf, yeah. Get yeah, it. You, like <laughs> you really want to have a house in LA. That's the path. <laughs> that is the path. <laughs> I love it. So what are you the most passionate about right now? Um, funny enough, like I, I, you know, you asked me about going back to prose. I've, I've had a bit of a gap here for the last, I haven't been on anything. It, I, the last show I worked on ended in the fall and, um, nothing happens in the winter in Hollywood. Everything's already either shutting down or planning for the next year. And, um, so I didn't really have anything going on for like the last quarter of, of last year. And that's when I got back into prose and I wrote a book of, you know, horror short stories and that was probably the most uh, creatively inspiring thing I've done in a while. Because the last few jobs I've had uh, were rewrite jobs, which aren't my favorite thing, but they pay and I can, you know, usually get them. It's what my resume can, can get me is when a studio has a script that's just not quite ready for a green light or something isn't clicking. Um, it's something that I could do quickly and make a decent amount of money doing. So I usually, I take them. They're not the most rewarding jobs. Um, I guess, and, and feed, that's sort of like, if you want to be part of that TV machine, that's kind of the feature version of it is script doctoring and doing rewrites. Um, so I hadn't really worked on anything on my own for a lot of last year. So just diving in and doing prose short stories with, you know, zero gatekeepers and also zero plan. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. Really just sort of like with no, with no rules put on me, it was, it was fun to just, to just go. Um, and I actually just turned the, turned it over to my agents and like, look, I I know you're not book agents, but here's this. Basically, I wrote them all to be also sellable as as IP. Right. So, yeah. Smart. Um, you know, I, last year I pitched on three short stories that were being adapted into features. One of which hadn't even been published. So I'm yeah. like, I can I can give you a stack of unpublished short stories if that's a viable thing that can be sold. So if I can make my own. Stephen King has done kind of well with that. Yeah, no, I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, 
talk to us about the horror space right now of a lot of students who love horror, who'd love to be working in horror. And I'm so curious about it in terms of like what's happening in the community. How do they plug in? What does it look like right now? Horror is interesting um, in that it's probably the only genre that never has never gone out of fashion. Um, you know, one of the earliest silent era like hits Nosferatu was a horror film. Yes. It didn't it just have its hundred year like anniversary yeah. is incredible. Insane. And and mm-hmm. you know, even even Metropolis to some extent has a lot of horror vibes and and tropes in it because it's a you know it's it's very Frankenstein-y. Um so it's you know it's I mean or just even something like um like Fritz Lang's M, which is you know a, <laughs> basically a modern day it's like it was the seven of the silent era like thrillers and horror films the things that like scare people they've it's never gone out of fashion sci-fi comes and goes you know what dramas tend to focus on changes the kind of humor that makes a comedy a hit changes over time horror is just like a mainstay and it's also one of the only genres that has a zillion subgenres. like you know is it is it a ghost movie is it like a serial killer movie is it a slasher like there's so many different subgenres, and it's also one of the only genres that has a very tiered um, fan base where you have um, constant output from zero to low, you know, no budget horror films are made constantly, um, and which you don't get with dramas or, I mean, people make comedy shorts, I guess, but like, you know, nobody's making like a three minute three minute like sci-fi short because you know it's 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 harder to to do that genre on a budget horror works at, at any scale so you've got like three minute no budget horror films that someone's shooting in their backyard and then you have studios making you know multi-million dollar like franchises and there's everything in between and like it's it there's a subset of horror fandom that's not great there's there's horror bros that think horror can only be like R-rated and full of nudity and gore, and it's and it's only for them. Um, and those movies exist, and those movies are made. Um, but there's such a wide scale. Like, like the, honestly, like, and this is what we learned doing Lads of Feather. One of the biggest audiences for horror is teenage girls. Teenage girls love horror. I never is- would have guessed that. <laughs> what? Really? I mean, well, that's you know, that's kind of where Twilight you know, happen to an extent. And if you look at YA fiction, it's like 90% supernatural slash fantasy um, for whatever reason. And there, there, I personally like there needs to be more things like um, Lives of Feather, like things that service like, you know, the 13 and 19 year old like girl, um, because those are also weirdly like the stars of a lot of horror films, even if it's not made for them. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, See that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a genre that ex- exists at all levels that never quite goes away. It's no matter how much the Academy and the mainstream, like, turn it down, no matter how often, um, you know, mainstream media send non-horror fans to review horror films and, you know, give them terrible reviews, no matter how often those gross horror bros, like, try to review Bomb, um, you know, uh, like, you know, The Last of Us for having, you know, mm-hmm. gay in it. It like it still it still persists. I mean, in, in my mind, it's like I just I've always had an underdog mentality, like a little bit of a rebel mentality. I've never liked group thing. I've never liked mainstream things, and so it's 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 just always 
Is this sort of always the un- underdog? But it could also be, uh, there's a lot of money in it right now. Like last year, you know, Terrifier 2, which I wasn't a huge fan of, was basically a Kickstarter movie that made, that got theatrical release because it made, you know, $200 million. And, um, Incredible. you know, Smile was a short film and the director, the guy who made it was actually able to negotiate Paramount funding him his own movie. Um, you know, and that was like, that was like a legit, like 20, $30 million movie that then made, you know, over 200 million. Uh, you had Barbarian this year has already started strong with like Megan and Skinnamary, like mm-hmm. those are two very different, like one of those is big budget, one of those is no budget. Um, and they're both, you know, they're both landing. Horror is just, it, it, it never goes away. Even if someone's telling you it's going away or people are tired of it, it never goes away. All that changes is, um, from a writer's perspective, it's always the like same but different. You know, we, we'll, we'll do zombies for a while, but then we'll get tired of zombies and we'll move to like like possession stories. We get tired of possession stories, we move to to killer dolls, whatever it is. And you know, it's it's it rotates, and you can even go back to zombies. Like zombies have been around for in horror films for 50, 60 years, and all of a sudden, you know, back in the early 2000s, 28 days later, decides to like say, hey, what if they run now and they're not zombies on dead, but they're infected. And then all of a sudden now we, then we have a whole new, you know, subgenre that goes for another decade. Um, it's this, you can apply any genre to horror and make a new subgenre out of it. My personal favorite is, because uh, it's what I, what sort of uh, mostly influenced me as a kid is uh, 80s low budget sci-fi space horror. Like when, uh, I always tell this story when people talk to me, but I, I remember very clearly getting our first VCR in the 80s. And my dad got it from an appliance store. And this was before there were video stores. The only place you could rent movies was from the back corner of the appliance store where you got your VCR. And the studios were still very reticent about home video. But people like Roger Corman and Charles Band and Lloyd Kaufman, all these B-movie kings saw the potential and went for it. And so I was a little kid in the 80s. I loved Star Wars and I wouldn't shop out. So my dad to like keep me busy would go to this back corner of the appliance store and rent anything that had like a spaceship on the cover. (laughs) Those all ended up being like, you know, knockoffs of Alien that, you know, terrified me and broke my brain, but like did, you know, huge things for me. And I just saw someone say Night of the Common, which is a great example um, of of like a more grounded, less less spaceship, but still kind of sci-fi-ish. So, I mean... Night of the Comet is a is a great example of something like you know it's it's a zombie movie but it's also Valley Girls like someone was like someone saw Valley Girl and was like what if we merge this with a zombie movie and <laughs> a little bit of a sci-fi like that's what you can do with horror you can take this genre and this genre slam them together and then you know people and it works and you can just plug horror into anything and it works. Did I answer the question or did I over Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it made me think about this term that has gotten really popular. Even, even I've seen a lot more of it on Twitter in the last couple of months, the elevated horror. Well, how, describe that. What does that mean? That ele- <laughs> I have feelings about the term. I'm um, confused. <laughs> basically, everything I just said uh, gives you a, a wide range of tone in a horror film. There's always going to be things that are schlocky and be, there's always been more cerebral or cerebral or art house horror films. They've always existed. 
And those are the ones that tend to get more attention from the mainstream because it's more obvious that they're doing something extra. Um, you know, uh, they've been around since the 70s or even the 60s. Um, uh, don't Look Back. There's a Donald Sutherland phone. I'm totally blank. I think it's called Don't Look Back. It's like a Donald Sutherland, um, his daughter dies. It's sort of like a, a psychic premonition thriller type movie. And, it, you know, if it came out today, it would be it would be considered, a you know, an elevated horror film. Or any, anything that, that Ken Russell did in the 70s, which are these weird art house movies with horrific elements, that would be considered, you know, elevated horror now. Basically, what happens is, is that when a horror film comes out that's more obvious about it's that it's a thinking person's horror film. The mainstream media who is always loath to admit that they like horror will say, will find a way to call it something different. They'll say it's art house. They'll say it's foreign. The new buzz term is elevated. Um, the people who basically it's, it's a term like my ex-girlfriend didn't like horror films but did. And we had this conversation where I'm like, you like horror films. I know you do. And she's like, no. And I'd say, well, you think Lost Boys is one of your favorite movies. And she, and she would say, well, Lost Boys is like classic 80s fun movie. Well, what about The Shining? Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's just, that's like Kubrick. You know, what about Psycho? Well, that's just a classic thriller. No matter what horror movie I threw at her, she had a way to sort of redefine it to excuse herself for liking a horror film. Because basically she saw like, you know, some low rent slasher film on cable when she was 10 years old in the middle of the night and it was gross and she didn't like it and it scared her. And I think a lot of people associate horror with the cheesiest, worst, most low budget slasher film they saw in their youth. And they just want to like, just loop an entire genre into that one bad experience. And so then something comes along that makes them think and is like doing something different and weird, they have to find another way to put it in a box to talk about it and be okay and not admit that they like horror films. And that's where Elevator comes from. But once that sort of catches on, then it permeates the industry. So now when executives talk to me about wanting to do an elevated horror film, I know, oh, they want to do something that's more cerebral, less gory, more, you know, they want to make an A24 film is what they want to do now. Okay. And, that, I'm not, and I'm not saying those movies aren't legit. They're great. I love A24 films. They're just a different, a slightly different paradigm um, than, than, say, like a slasher. And I think you'll find that most like true horror fans, they don't love the term elevated horror. They just like, they're like, you know, I think the last, Jordan Peele's movies tend to do it. Like, nope, mm. and get out. People don't want to call those horror films because they're socially relevant and really smart. And horror fans will tell you, that's a horror film and it's great. And other and you know someone who doesn't want to like horror films will say like, well, it's it's more of an elevated thriller, you know, like it's. But now that it's been said enough, like I said, the execs, the producers, the financiers, they use it as a term to describe what they want to do. So you know, it's it's it starts as a descriptor and it just sort of then becomes a subgenre in terms of production. What do you think about the movies that are uh, right now in theaters? We got a couple of them. We got Cocaine Bears coming out today, Blood and Honey, Megan. Talk to us about your thoughts. Um, uh, Blood and Honey, just I I like that it exists, but it's not for me. I you know it, it's it's my, <laughs> I like that it exists. <laughs> I mean, anything that like you know I I, I Disney is a little Disney's not great. They, they Disney's literally paid 
millions of dollars to change copyright law. Um, and like, you know, I, I personally don't love going after like, I think it's easy to go after IP. I'd much rather more original things be made. Mm-hmm. But for that movie to exist, uh, you know, just sort of like stomachs nose at, at, at Disney is kind of fun. It's, it's, it's fun for me. And I like that's to me, that's the spirit of, of like underdog horror is to do something like that. I didn't necessarily like it, but I'm glad it, it was made. Um, cocaine, I don't even know how to classify cocaine bear. It's just, uh, I will say that that's another thing that I think horror and comedy share this where like they can take these swings and do the absurd that other genres can't do. Like comedy, it makes sense because absurdism is a form of comedy and it, horror can do it as well. Like horror can go over the top and I firmly believe that horror should be fun. I have always leaned more towards classic 80s horror films that I saw with my friends and 90s as well. Like when you're laughing and screaming at the same time. To me, Scream is like the epitome of a horror film. It has all the things you need. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think Cocaine Bear is going to be crazy business. I think it's going to be <laughs> just bonkers. I think it'll be great. Megan is a studio horror film. Um, I... It was actually written by Kayla Cooper, who's um, amazing. She she also did Malignant um, and was one of the other writers on Hellfest, my movie. Um, and, and she she knows what she's doing. I'm really excited for the uncut Blu-ray to come out because I know the script was a lot more. Uh, they they cut it back for PG-13 for the theaters, and I know the the original script is more intense. And that's not me bagging on PG-13 horror, which absolutely deserves to exist. Um, what else is out right now? I can't think of it. Um, but I mean, the, but those are all good examples. Skinnering also just came out, and and it's crazy. And that's that's a very much a art house style thing, and like it's going to require you to have. How do I put it? it, it it's <laughs> there's a lot of people aren't going to like it. It, it. it requires a very specific level of patience and point of view um, that either works for you or it doesn't. Like when I see somebody bagging on it, I totally get why, even though I loved it. It's amazing how subjective it all is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, scares are subjective. You know, we like, if you Google up, how do you write a scary movie? The first piece of advice every single one of those articles gives you is like, what scares you? And, you know, my challenge to that is like, I know what scares me. And I don't know, I mean, that might scare lots of other people, but it's not going to scare everybody. So being scary is more more nuanced than that. Than that. <laughs> hey, talk to us about some advice you might have for screenwriter directors who love horror, want to work in horror. Make your own stuff. I mean, I, I make your. I mean, specifically horror. Make your own stuff and enter your scripts with the blood list. Uh, the blood list is free to enter. It doesn't get the press as like the blacklist or the nickels because Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, is again, she has she has sort of like that underdog spirit. She she employed she had to start um, using Coverfly to help her do the reading because she gets thousands of submissions. But it's ultimately up to her, and she is a horror fan at at their core. And she will, um, you know, every year pick ten scripts. Costs zero dollars to enter. So if you have a horror script, there's zero reason to not enter. Oh, it. that's amazing. The no contest costs zero dollars. Well, yeah. except for that one. <laughs> you won't. She won't take money for it, and. Basically, you if you make it, she picks the top ten. I think this uh, this last year 
was just under 2,000 people entered. Um, and it goes up every year. Um, and uh, she picks the top 10. And I would say every year, at least eight out of the 10, if not more. I think last year was nine. Uh, people end up getting reps out of it. The top one, generally, Haley, um, who is my manager, also she works for Brillstein. Um, Brillstein often uh, will do a, a development deal with the top winning script. Um, and again, zero dollars to enter. And she is someone who looks for original horror takes. So if you have that script that's like, this is this would be great, but it's weird and no one will take a chance on it, she will. Um, you know, so there, if you write horror, you have zero reasons to not enter the bloodless. Um, that plus doing your own thing, making getting your own things made, people always ask me how to break in and you can't break in without a rep and you can't get a rep without having scripts that are very well written and very readable. Um, there's lots of things you can do to a script. It's kind of what I've been doing on Twitter lately as I've been really just trying to like give my tips and tricks. Um, I mean, to be fully transparent, I don't, I, a lot of writers do workshops and sell time. I might do it as well. Um, I don't want, I, I don't know. I, I got to figure it out. There's a strike coming. Every writer out there is trying to find other means of, of making money yeah. and don't wanna, I don't feel good I don't want to charge people like college course level prices for my knowledge but I want to share my knowledge I want to help people elevate um I'm thinking of like the a lot of the a lot of the advice I've been giving um I'm just sort of like taking the things I'm doing intuitively after writing so many scripts and like I do these things in my head and I'm trying to like put them down on paper in terms of like in a form of like in the form of like exercises. And I'm thinking, trying to think possibly doing a future of like doing some sort of a workbook or something to help writers. Uh, there's a million and one things out there to tell you how to write a screenplay. I want to tell you how to write ideas or how to how to be scary. I want to like help people come up with more conceptual things. So a lot of the stuff I've been posting on Twitter and on my Substack are kind of geared towards me figuring out if I can do that, if people are interested in that, et cetera. But the thing about my answer when I'm asked like how to break in, it's 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 always you need the rep and you don't get a rep without having a script that's well readable and producible. If you have your own content that they can see, someone will always watch something before reading. They just they just will. Yes. Uh, I do you know, that too a lot. Absolutely. You know, four or five, even a 10 minute short will be looked at before a full script um, outside of a script competition, of course. And, you know, and, you know, other screen, I, my thing with screenplay competitions is, is you really, really got to do your research because there's so many of them now and almost all of them charge you. The, you know, the blood list, like I said, is free. The blacklist is obviously very well known. Uh, the Nichols is very well known. Um, Austin, South by Southwest, those are all big ones. But, you know, look at who's coming out of them. Look at movies, screenplays that did well in those competitions. Did they get made? You know, you, you got to do that sort of research to know where you're spending money if you really have to do, like, uh, if you really need, are going to spend your own money on entering a competition. But placing in, rep, in, in competitions of note, having a script that, is, that reads well and is producible, and having some of your own content produced even if it's a low budget, those things combined are what is, is going to help you get a rep. The more they can see of you and see your worth, they, if they just read a script, that could definitely do it. 
if they see a script and they see some wins, I can do it. Those wins on will a lot of times will be what led them to read you in the first place. If they can quickly look at a couple quality shorts, which I know are not easy to make, um, that 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 also benefits you. So it's it's all about having things available that show your worth, which means wins, multiple scripts, content. Um, that will get you a rep. I mean, I can't guarantee you get it. There's also the fourth factor, which is just luck, um, which yeah. being having a person, you being the thing that someone is looking for at a given point in time is a big part of it. And I can't, you can't teach for that. There's no, there's no secret formula offered in a workshop to put you in the right place at the right time with the right piece of content. And that's unfortunately a big part of it. Um, people ask me about querying a lot. I, I don't, I know people who, if it's important for you to query so you feel as though you're doing something, absolutely do it. I know a few people who query my, um, I have very close friends who still do a lot of querying. I hated it. I barely ever did it. Um, none of the reps I've had have ever read queries. Um, that doesn't mean they don't. That doesn't, the, the, you know, the bigger agent, no one at CAA or Brillstein or UTA or Gersh, they're not going to be reading any queries. Someone at a small boutique agency might. And if you're new, a small boutique agency isn't a bad thing at all. Um, when I started with Kaylee, when she was doing the list, she was just her. This was well before she went to Brillstein. She was just, she was like 26 and working out of her apartment and was able to be a manager based solely upon the part that she was 26 and went to every party and was like, you know, a Hollywood party girl. And like, I, as an introverted writer, was like, yes, this person 10 years younger than me who's going to go to all the parties and network that I won't ever feel comfortable doing, she can go, she can go do that. Um, and that worked out great because then she grew up and became like a legit, you know, powerhouse manager at a, at a company. So starting with someone who's small, like you are, is good because they're hungry and they're going to be, you know, they don't have a roster of 20 people. They will fight for you more because they're just as hungry to establish themselves. Um, so I'm not saying querying is a dead end. But like competitions, do your homework, know who you're querying to, and find the person, you know, actually query people, don't just carpet bomb anybody who's thinking of its submissions, really go after people who want what you are. Seth, is there a community of folks who gathered who love horror? Is there conventions? Is there events? Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's tons of horror conventions. Um, there's lots, I mean, like, you know, there's, there's lots of there's lots of subgroups. <laughs> there's, you know, of all those horror genres, there's people who just love slashers. People that's like, you know, Joe Bob Briggs has a huge, huge fan base. Um, but like, there's there's conventions, there's horror conventions year round, um, and that, those are great places to either. A lot of them do uh, short screenplay competitions that are cheap to enter. A lot of them do short film competitions. Those are all great places to go and, and like meet people. Obviously, social media. Even though you know we all hate it, we all use it. There are lots of lots of communities um, out there. If you live in a place like LA, there's lots of events all the time that happen. Um, it's you don't have to. I don't think you have to try too hard or look too far to find horror fans. They're they're kind of everywhere. I love that. Hey, how can people find you and on social media and your Substack? Um, though that's the, that's the best way to find me right now. The the Substack is just my. My what is my subsec? Come on, let me open it up. I don't, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna make sure I get it right because 
um, yeah, it's Seth, Seth M. Sherwood, my full name, Seth, letter M, Sherwood, dot substack.com. And on Twitter, I'm, uh, I think, it, I believe it's, again, just my name. Yeah, just Seth M. Sherwood at Twitter. At Seth M. Sherwood. Both places. It's just my full name. I mean, I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but it's mostly just friends and family and pictures of my cats and my kid. But like the, 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 the me talking about screenwriting and horror stuff, it's, it's, it's generally like Twitter and then I dump it onto the Substack so it doesn't get lost forever. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been a yeah. great conversation. I so appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here as a special guest. And uh, at this point, we'll, we will shift over to the Q&A for the students. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do you get your independent movie in the horror genre seen in Los Angeles? Um, the problem with a lot of the LA ones is that they're so competitive because there's so many more people in LA doing the short films right. uh, that, that they're really hard to get to get into. I mean, I know I know professional people who also don't necessarily get to break in, um, in into some of the into some of those competitions. I think it's, you know it, it's it's always a war of attrition. Like if you, if you if you place a short in three lesser known competitions, then you then it has that much more merit when you give it to the, this one. Um, it's the same thing I say about like, you know, scripts. You can't just go out with one script. You have to have like, you know, four scripts. It's it, it it's always going to be a war of attrition. It's, it, it's, it's a chipping away. You can't let, there's always going to be some person that we all hate who just rolls in and like, you know, you know, right now it's the guy who did Skin Marine. Like, where the fuck did this dude come from? But he's great. I'm kidding. He seems like a super nice dude and I love the movie, but like that came out of nowhere. And like, you know, you can't compare yourself to people like that. You just, you know, when I was when I was first trying to break in, it was um um what's his name? The guy who did, who did Donnie Darko. Like Donnie Darko just came out of nowhere. Yep. And he was like, you know, 24. And I'm like, who gave him all this money and these people? And then he got this great, these great deals, you know, it's it's you you can't compare yourself to those people most everyone i know chipped away and had a very blue collar working their way up to get to where they are even people who were directing like shorts um making your own thing and then also if if you work um on other people's stuff that that also helps and you know like it's it's stupid and it sounds weird but if you're working within queer spaces and this should be familiar to you a lot of the ways you have to kind of build your own community within communities. Like it's, you know, do your thing, build your team, but then help them help the people on your team do their things until you, you know, become a, <laughs> become a collective of some sort, like, you know, mutual support society. How did you come up with a sequel to a popular franchise like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and make it your own? Like there's a very obvious pitch when you say what's a young other face, there's a there's a version of that. 
And it occurred to me that like everyone else was going to be doing that. So I had to do something that was different. And I knew, and it ended up being true, that I had to come up with something that like could potentially piss off a lot of people. And the little bit of research I did was like, I just, I went back, I wanted to look at just the original, which I'd seen a billion times. And I started just reading everything I could from Toby Hooper and uh, Gunnar Hansen, who played the original Leatherface. And I found both of them in every interview talked about the same thing. And that was that Leatherface was a character who was devoid of identity and personality. All of his motivations were basically to support whatever his family wanted him to do. And his personality was like whatever mask he put on. There's like actually three different masks in the original film that he wears. And his behavior sort of changes depending on which mask he's wearing. But I just, that was my starting point. And I thought like, instead of like, you know, the easy version is like you have like the, the little mutant inbred deformed kid. And I'm like, well, what if he wasn't? What if he was a normal person that then became this? And that's what, and once I said that, that's what sort of clicked for me. That was like what I've not seen anybody do. And I love stories about identity. And I'm like, okay, so what has to, if I took this person who is relatively normal, he comes from this messed up family, but what if he was taken away from them and had a chance to be normal? Like what series of bad things would have to happen to like reduce and destroy his identity till he gets down to like being the zero that he is in the films that we know? And I knew that like, that meant like for most of my movie, a young Leatherface was gonna be a normal talking person, which he is in the movie. And I thought, I just, I just knew it. I'm like, half the people are gonna hate this, but no one else is gonna pitch this. And so I, did, I, I kinda knew going in, this was either gonna get me laughed out of the room or it's what was gonna get me the job. And it's what got me the job. I became very close friends with the person who hired me since then. And she's, she teaches and she's had me come and tell this story to her class. And it was absolutely true that me coming up with something that was totally different, being able to dovetail it to where it belonged was what got me the job. And I have, you know, a couple hundred pieces of hate mail saved somewhere on my computer because people hated it too. But, you know, whatever. I got to work on a franchise and I got paid money and quit my day job. So. How do you differentiate between thrillers and horror movies? The easy answer is a horror will have... Uh, more supernatural elements, but I think that's a cheat because I think there's plenty of horror films that don't have supernatural elements. Um, it comes down to tone. Uh, structurally speaking, a horror film and a thriller are very, very similar. You're doing, both of them work with tension. Both of them basically work with a rise and a fall of winding your audience up for something that's going to be scary, delivering on that, and then letting them calm down, giving them ease, giving them a bit of levity or give them a bit of normalcy so they level back out and then you wind them back up in. And your whole story should be doing this the whole time. With horror, those peaks, those valleys are just bigger. And, and I think the, the easiest way to do it, for, in my mind, the main difference between them and, and totally is that you know, you're going to be more extreme with horror. The, the, the stakes in a thriller are, 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 are going to be less. Like, Thrill, like if you had a Venn diagram of like crime movies and uh, and horror movies, thrillers sort of the overlap. So thrillers are going to have some sort of element of like procedural mystery or you know finding a person. You're basically your antagonist in a thriller is going to be a human that's doing shitty things. You know, at some level. I never asked if it's okay if I can swear on this. And I have a terrible mouth. I have Holy a mind. Okay. <laughs> um, a horror film might have a human as antagonist or it might have a monster of some sort. But if a horror film 
does have a human as its antagonist, they need to have monstrous qualities. So, you know, there's one of the most classic arguments is, is um, Silence of the Lambs, a horror film or a thriller film, because it really walks the line. Structurally, it's a thriller film. It's a mystery. You know, it's leading you points in. But I will say that Scream, one of the best horror films ever made, is also a mystery. Um, but Hannibal Lecter, I would say, I classify personally uh, Silence of the Lambs as a horror film, because Hannibal Lecter is, you know, uh, evil enough that he's not human anymore. Like, Hannibal Lecter doesn't exist in our world. The villain in a thriller is someone who might exist in our world, maybe a little bit exaggerated. Hannibal Lecter, like, he's a serial killer, he's a genius, he's a cannibal. Like, that's that's absurd. It's amazing, but it's absurd. Like, that doesn't exist in real life. Like, at best, you might get two of those. Like, we all like a genius serial killer in our scary movies, but... If you've ever, you know, read interviews, like there's been like one or two serial killers that were actually smart. Most of them were just lucky and of average or sub-average intelligence. Um, point being, if you have a human as your villain and you want it to be a horror film, they need to have something about them that's not necessarily supernatural, but something that's sort of beyond the scope of reality. How is the setting used as a character in horror? The easy example is, you know, Texas as a character in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. So what does that mean? Like, you know, Tex- Texas has a vibe. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit cowboy. It's a, it's a little bit racist. It's a little bit, it's a little bit <laughs> wild. And I say all these things as someone who's been to Texas once, twice if you count a trip through the airport. But I've seen all those movies. I've seen lots of movies that take place in Texas. And there becomes like a flavor. And a very important thing to do in horror, I mean, you have to do this in any genre, but in horror especially, you can't have just scares constantly. Like like, like I was just saying about the ebb and the flow, you have to bring things down to be able to scare them again. You can't maintain a constant scare for an hour and a half, but you don't ever want them to forget they're watching a horror film. So the best way to do that is through ambiance and through vibe. Um, and then that, you know, and setting. So in, you know, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first half hour they're just walking through like a barren landscape and they find a farmhouse where there's like taxidermy on the wall but like way too much taxidermy on the wall like ridiculous inhuman amounts of taxidermy on the wall there's questionable things hanging on hooks in the kitchen none of these are things that are jumping out and scare you they're just it's all just world building and set that's sort of giving you this feeling so when i say setting as character I'm talking about like making sure the visuals and the scenes have a vibe and a feel to them that's adjacent to the story you're telling. Like, you know, it's most horror films are, you know, things bad, bad things happen at night. That's the, that's the most baseline example of errors because we're wired to be scared of the dark. So scary things tend to happen more in the dark. So it's, it's just about <clears throat> finding the, <laughs> the scare behind the scare. I don't even know if that's a thing. It, it's, it, it's a, you know, you, you don't that you don't go visit Dracula at like a shiny, like pretty house in the suburbs. You go to a Gothic castle. So when you're okay. setting, you know, you, if you think about your character, you, you think about like, what's the setting they're in? Like, what's the certain, like, where do we want to place them? Hannibal Lecter, I just talked about, like, do we put Hannibal Lecter in like, you know, in Manhunter, 
in the 80s, that movie had Hannibal Lecter in like a white, like pristine cell. And that gave you one vibe that was very clinical. But Silence of the Lambs puts Hannibal Lecter in like a dungeon, basically, which tells you he's even scarier. Like, like he's so scary, the mental hospital put him in the basement. So it's it's looking at your character and then like making sure that they it's 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 kind of like you know a, putting a drop of ink on a piece of paper and watching it spread out. You put your character in your scene and you think about how their vibe sort of affects the things around them, and you start building the world so that it makes sense for your antagonist in a horror film. In, in another genre, you would probably attach it to a different character. Where do zombies fit into the horror genre? Is it its own? Or is it a subgenre? To some degree, I, I mean, I like I was saying earlier. Like the one thing I love about horror is that it's the one genre that has like a billion like subgenres. You ever notice in a vampire movie, like people already know what vampires are, but in a zombie movie, maybe not so much now, but for a long time in a zombie movie, people were like, "What? What is this thing?" You, everyone had to learn what a zombie was, and yet in a vampire story, vampires were given, and a lot of times vampires and zombies aren't in the same movie. And, and horror just had, and, and it's because horror is sort of the nexus between uh, theology and mythology and, and, and campfire stories. And so there's so many different ways to do it. It's got more subgenres than any other genre there is. And so you can, you can absolutely, you just, you just, you can slice off anything and make it its own thing. As long, if it's scary and it's otherworldly in some way, it can be, it can be horrific. How do you calibrate how much you reveal in the horror genre from the first episode of the series or the pilot on through the run of the series? Um, there's there, there's two key things um, when you're doing, when you need to um, do it for, for, for TV. And I, I talked about it a little bit in that Substack, so I might re-talk about it. Um, really is it's, it's the escalation of the scares and its point of view. You can't obviously have uh, in your pilot the monster, you know, come out of its portal into our house and, you know, it can't be Godzilla. It can't destroy a city. And then basically you have to think of it in terms of like your world. The mo- most of the time in the supernatural in supernatural stories, the world stays normal and it doesn't want to believe the scary thing exists. The second the whole world believes the scary thing, it's not scary anymore. So when you are doing horror on TV and you know you got to go multiple episodes, multiple seasons, you have to find what that balance is um, if it's a secret. And I think in that in that that post I made, I talked about those are the two big differences. Like, are, is your scary thing a secret, or is it like Walking Dead or Last of Us, where everybody knows about it? In that case, you got to find the scare somewhere else. In your case, if it's a secret, then it's all about who you reveal that to. And that's the other part of it, which is point of view. Your main characters are going to experience the scary thing. Other people probably aren't going to believe them, you know. Like, like, uh, and the, the, they sort of become the vanguard of that secret. I think in that post I mentioned, like, you know, Buffy, which supernatural, not necessarily scary, but you know, it was Buffy's job to hold back the monsters and keep the world safe and keep the world monsters a secret, so the whole world didn't get messed up. I, you know, it's it's all about the point of view of who your characters are. They're the ones that you got that you. This is a little tricky thing. You got it. You got it. Yes, you want to write for your audience to be scared. And, you know, like you reading your cousin's story, there's things in that that spooked you. 
those are what are going to make it memorable. But in the moment when they're watching the show, you need to be writing to scare your main characters because that's the proxy for the person watching the show. If your main character is never scared, you can still scare your audience, but it's never going to be as impactful. I mean, I don't, obviously I didn't read your, your cousin's script, so I couldn't say for sure, but the things that scared you, were they like the ambient, like setting scares, like, like that I was just talking about with Charles, or are they the things that were happening to the main character? I'm, oh, definitely the latter. Like, yeah. So that, like, like, once you have a character that your audience loves and they get invested in, you do your job to scare that character and that's going to transfer onto them. Mm. And then you add that to the things like that I was just talking about with Charles's question with the ambient things around, and then you're scary all the way through. Mm. Thank you. And, and then obviously if you have a TV show, you also have, think of it like a video game. You have levels of monsters. You don't, you don't get to the final boss in the pilot. What are your thoughts on writing for animation as opposed to live action and how to break into that? Well, there, it's 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 definitely harder. Animation, good the good things about it. The bad thing about animation is that they're not union, so they tend to be they, it tends to not pay as much as like features and television. But the good thing about it is that it's not union, so you don't have to go through as many hoops to get to get through it. Um, the other great thing about animation is unlike you know say. 20, 30, even less years ago, um, you know, you don't, animation in the current time is so much easier to get produced um, because you, most of it's done digitally. Even if it's not like 3D Pixar style, most 2D animation is still done digitally. And it's, it's you know, I would say getting, finding, networking through social media, somebody, finding someone, even if it's a student, like finding someone who can get you like a, like a demo made, like if you produce like, you know, five minutes of your animated thing as like a test reel, like that alone will put you ahead of a lot of people. Everyone I know who works in animation fell into it. Um, I don't know many people who are like dedicated animators, but that's just because that's not the sort of field I came from. And, you know, I know a lot of the like artists who are having a hard time breaking in because they don't necessarily have the, the content. And I've been, you know, looking at artists and trying to connect with them to, like, you know, come up with more things to do animated style. Um, animation also is looking for IP the way everybody else is. Uh, the one I'm working on with Amazon, I can't really talk about. It was a comic book in, in the early 2000s that's being adapted uh, for animation um, that I, I I wrote a couple episodes for. Um, and it's it's... On the writing side, it's very similar to, to TV in terms of like a writer's room. Um, but for breaking in, like I don't know a ton about the world, but I do know that like what I'm trying to do to break into it more, because if there is a strike, I can still work in animation. So it's of interest to me as well. If I'm trying to connect with animators who aren't working that have a style that I like to just make like a two, three minute, like, you know, short, like just like something that sells the concept and shows what it would look like that I can have as like a showpiece. Because again, like I was saying before, with people making their own content, it's the same thing. An exec will watch some like a three-minute short every day before they will like sit down and read a stranger's half-hour script. Um, so you know, I wish I could give you better answers, but it's not a world I super know. Um, but it never hurts to have. Even if it's even just flat art, like even if it's just concept art, like that, that can help you as well. As much as you can to make it the most real solid thing when people when it gets in front of people. 
So, so as a writer, if you're writing for animation, then you're not part of the union then? Um, if you can be, the one I'm doing with Amazon was, it's sort of the, it's sort of up to the studio. Amazon decided to make that a union show because they wanted union writers. Okay. Um, I, I was, I was, I was shocked when I got the offer because I didn't think it would be, I was thrilled at what, what they were going to pay me. Um, but a lot of animation is not, I, um, it tends to be IATSE governed instead of WGA and SAG. Um, so there, there's, a, if there is a strike, if I, I, if an animated show is not union, I, I can technically work on it. Can you tell us the story of how you got involved in the movie London Has Fallen? <laughs> it was the best thing ever, basically, that um, I uh, I did too good of a job on the first draft of Leatherface, um, where usually, you know, these things are step deals um, and you, you owe them a certain amount of drafts. I turned in my second draft and it was really good, really solid. And they said, actually, we want to go out to directors now and then bring the directors in before doing the third draft. Because a lot of times you do your drafts, then they bring in the directors and, and then they'll hire, they'll, they maybe they'll hire a new writer. They might bring you back. It's it's stupid, but that's how it's usually done. So they wanted to find the directors and basically hold me for a draft. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the meantime, so then I had this gap of time mm -hmm. and they, um, I had proven to them that like I could work fast. I take notes really well mm -hmm. and I was delivering with them there. It's the same, it was the same studio as London has fallen. Yeah. Um, so they were like, Hey, we need help. Um, London has fallen is a mess because basically uh, the star drawer Butler had a, the script that he liked mm -hmm. a director and a new writer had come up with a revision that he didn't like and they were fighting and Gerard Butler had this sway because he was the moneymaker for that thing. The director left. So they brought on a new director and they were basically four weeks out from shooting. The new director didn't really even have time to, to read his script. And they were like, look, we like Gerard likes his bits from this one, but we do like the action sequences from this one. We need someone to go to London for a month, be involved with pre-production and just somehow Frankenstein these two drafts together. Yeah. And the deal was, like, there's already been two writers on each draft, so at some point the WGA is just like, enough, no more credited writers. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wasn't going to be getting credit. So the offer to me was, like, you get no credit, but this was actually the job that got me in the union. Uh, Leatherface didn't. Leatherface was non-union. So no credit, but, well, I should say my name is not on a Gerard Butler B-movie, which is right. okay with. <laughs> on top of that, they paid me a stupid amount of money because it was a quick turnaround. It was more money. It was basically like Leatherface was okay. I know people aren't supposed to talk money, but I will. It was my second job ever. And it made me basically what I had made the entire year of my day job the year before. Yeah. Leatherface was great. Like Leatherface allowed me to quit my day job, but it was still like, okay, I need to book something else before this X amount of time. London's phone was like, hey, we'll pay you this much. And I'm like, that's what I made all of last year sitting at a desk. Mm -hmm. So that's great. I also got to go to London and live in London for a month with a per diem. And we were on uh, the lot at Pinewood and Star Wars, Force Awakens, you know, the first new Star Wars was literally shooting next door in the next stage. I could have pushed through the door and seen the Millennium Falcon, but like their, their security contract was like, like, no matter what project you're on, if you violated their security, you would get kicked out. So basically it was like, the coolest experience of my life. Go live in London for a month, work on a high-end movie, mm -hmm. get paid to do it, get a per diem, mm -hmm. eat at the commissary and spend your per diem on cool shoes that mm -hmm. you can only find in London. It was great. It was like an awesome, 
moment. And my name's not on a movie that's, you know, it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but that, that, that was just me being in the right place at the right time and having proved my, it had nothing to do with genre, had nothing to do with being a horror writer, mm-hmm. had everything to do with me showing that I could take notes, turn them around quickly, write quickly, and write pages that were producible and didn't need a lot of work to get in front of the camera. Nice. What would you would you do action thriller again or would you Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I love I love most genres. I'm a fan mm-hmm. of most things. I've always been a horror and sci-fi guy first. Right. Um, because I've had success in horror, those are the job offers I get, and I have zero problem with that. But if that opportunity came up again, I would absolutely take it. Very cool. But thank you. That's a great answer. Thank you so much. Sure. Absolutely. Love it. Thanks, Chip. Um, and we'll go to Michael. Michael, you'll be our last question today. All right. Thanks for coming today, Seth. This is absolutely. awesome. So I'm, I'm a writer, director, I do sci-fi and action, but I'm really drawn to horror and I'll always do something scary. I can't do it. So I kind of have a story math question. I was, I was recently watching like a documentary about, about Spielberg working on Jaws and he's like, I know I got four scares in this movie, but if I shoot an extra day, I can get five with this dummy in my swimming pool. And yes. he's talking recently about going back to horror, maybe and dabbling in that interestingly. So, so with like, it's a math story, math question. So how often with these peaks and valleys, do you want to have your peaks? I've, I've heard people be like every nine minutes, but like, what, what is it like an organic thing? How do you decide how many of those, not jump scares, but like those memorable moments you're going to think about when you can't go to sleep at night. What is your story math of horror? How many jump scares? When do you have them? How do you structure your movies? I think that um, me personally, I'll tell you what I do and I'll tell you my, 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 I will give my advice that I don't follow. Um, <laughs> I would say that um, I am one of those like every 10 to 12 pages, but that doesn't mean peak, ultimate peak to ultimate valley. A lot of times it's every third scare that hits the peak and the other ones are a, a little bit lower. Like, you know, I, I like to hit a good medium-sized peak with like my opening scene. Most horror movies now like a good open like scare. And then you chill out for for most of the first act. And then maybe like, you know, 15 pages in, I'll do a creepy, you know, just feel like a little bit like something, uh, something unsettling, something we don't like, not a scare, but it, it counts as a scare psychologically because it's putting the audience off. It's not jumping out at them. It's not necessarily, um, you know, doing what I was just saying before about, um, you know, making it for your main characters. It might just be for the audience. Like the audience might see something in the background that the main character doesn't see. But then the next one, usually around the break, is going to be bigger. So I do look at that every 12, I'd say it very like when I'm writing my first drafts, I'll go for every 12. But once I start editing and expanding and contracting and moving things, it may not be that necessarily for sure. Like all those save the cat, like numbers of this on this page, this on that page, I think they should be approximate. And they're only going to be your first drafts because the second you start editing, and pre-production wants to move things around and you start getting notes, that all gets jumbled up anyway. That's just stuff to give your first reading draft. So I try to do that. What I would say is, as you're writing, is it really sort of depends on your subgenre and your tone. If it's something like, you know, Silence of the Lambs, you don't want to overdo it. You, you need to like time the scares with the reveals in the mystery. If it's a zombie movie, that's just meant to be, not necessarily a zombie, it could be a zombie movie, but like more of a horror survival film where it's more like your characters are on the run. You need to be putting them in peril at every moment possible. 
So it's just, it, it really sort of depends on, on your story. Like a more drawn out, cold, uh, not cold, uh, slow burn, a mystery. Like, you know, uh, I always go back to Scream because I think it's the most teachable movie ever. Scream is more of like a, you know, like a whodunit fighting inside of a slasher film. It scares our starts with a great one at the top and then it paces them out about every 10 to 15 pages. Some of them are fake outs. Some of them are ambient, like room scares. Some of them are kills. But they're definitely, the actual kills are still pretty spaced out until you get to the end, which is then you just turn it up. So I, I think it, it really just sort of depends on the type of story you're telling and not going too big, too quick with the wrong tone. You can't have Jaws coming and eating the boat in act one. That's an act three scare, not an act one scare. Zombie films are a good example because your zombies are chomping on somebody. You know, it's zombie movies are basic, like we're safe. Oh shit, maybe we're not safe. Zombies attack, run. Okay, we're safe, repeat. And so you're getting you're getting a gore moment or a scare moment, you know, on, on a schedule. And I'd say, like, you know, if if you're running, if you're running and gunning, like then you want to do it as, as frequently as you can. But a zombie movie. Only the first couple, the first, maybe the second zombie attack is scary. Because after that, we know what's up with the zombies. That's why most zombie movies tend to be about horrible people as opposed to the zombies Because you or the survival situation. Because you start getting, having to find scares everywhere. And the zombies just sort of become part of the, the character or the setting or the ambience being scary. My two favorite zombie films are um, Return of the Living Dead and Shaun of the Dead. Return of the Living Dead is just, it's kind of schlocky, so it's not great for teaching, but Shot of the Dead is super teachable. You know, it's the zombie, the, the scare comes from the zombie attack, and then like the tension of wondering what's going to happen. There's so many things that, that first morning when Sean wakes up and he does the exact same loop to the shop to get his, his, his coffee, um, you see all these things in the background that he misses. So that's like a low key scare for you. He gets back, they start watching the TV, and they start feeling like something's going on. Then their roommate, no, then there's the, I think it's the, the woman in the backyard first, which is more of a comedy beat. When you're doing a horror comedy, you kind of got to split your beats. But, you know, after you have a few zombie attacks, it's not, that's not as scary. What now becomes the fear is, is, is you know, and this is why Shaun of the Dead is so brilliant, is it somehow builds fear around a love story. Like, you want Shaun to, like, prove himself to his girlfriend and then they need to get safe you know and then then his his mom is bitten and they're trapped again so like the scares aren't just the zombies the scares are actually the 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 situations which goes back to the first thing i was saying where thrillers and horror films are both um start, you're playing with tension like the actual scary thing should revolve and change but the tension is that that up and down is really tension more than scare <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report how to pitch anything in one minute at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.